and also, like, to be fair, like, they took the the Q mythology, like, they built upon it from what was in the first season, right? Sure. And they did a great job, like, really fleshing it out in the next generation. Uh-huh. And I don't, uh, I don't recall, I'm sure there were Q stuff in Deep Space Nine, I don't remember. I think there's one Q episode of Deep Space Nine. But they didn't use it at nauseum. you know what I no, mean? Like, yeah. they're like, okay, that's something that, that we built on and we established there. It and... became sitcom-y in, it became flanderization, right, in, in Voyager, <clears throat> where it just was boiled down to its one quality. Because you got, like, Lady Q, and then Baby Q, and then... And at one point, Janeway becomes a giant salamander and fucks another salamander, so that's fun. Does Tuvok become the other salamander? Is that... I don't remember. <laughs> like, I just... Like, I remember, like, the finale episode opening with... Uh, which kind of takes the whole mystery out of it, right? It opens with them... Uh, it's like several years in the future. Yeah, they're and they taking off of uh, the TNG finale. Yeah, but that's fucking like, but the fact that they were lost in space and then you start it with, uh, they're here on Earth, so we know that they made it to Earth. Yeah, like because it, it would have been interesting if like Tuvok, if they opened with Tuvok and he's like, I'm the only one that survived whatever happened. That's interesting, right? Not we survived it, and let me tell you the story. I don't, you know what? This is not little big man. I don't need you to tell me this this, this flashback tale. Like, just fucking show me the story. You, you know, we spent seven. I mean, I didn't watch it all six, seven seasons, but I, I, I came. I in watched out. enough of it that I deserve a real ending. Damn it! <laughs> or at least something that felt like Trek. It didn't feel like. I don't know if you how much of Enterprise you watched, but there were. Oh, I watched the whole thing. So, but I felt like the last season is great. Is, the last season is the is most great. is the most track it, it ever was. Well, it's a whole and, new writer, and and it's really sad that like the other three seasons didn't match up to that last one because had they done that, the show would have been actually a good show. Yeah, and it wouldn't have been the most short lived uh, Trek show. Though they do throw a lot of stuff at the walls in the fourth season. Of, like, bombastic and deaths and stuff like that just to get it going. They're just like, fuck it. All bets are off. Let's destroy these sets so no one can use them. (laughs) (laughs) And the the, the Mirror Mirror episode was great. Yeah, great. And and by that point, like, by that point, they had earned it. Like, it was like, we're going to put it in the last episode and, like, everyone hates these characters anyway. So we're going to show them in, like, this this horrific light and the fans will love it. So maybe you won't be a fan of the new card show because the showrunner is a woman who's famous for writing Voyager novels. You know, you, if you're going to scrape the bottom of the barrel, I guess that's a better But the point. other person they have is Michael Shabon. Really? Yeah. What so it, it's Pulitzer Prize winning, Cavalier and oh Clay, man. Spider-Man 2 script writing. That's right, yeah, Fantastic yeah. novelist oh. Michael Shabon on this writing crew. And I was like, fuck yeah, then I'm, you've really you doubled down. That guy's one of my favorite authors. I was like, But he's yeah. a writer on it. Yeah. But she's the showrunner? I think he's one of the head writers. Because he's is the only, like, there's three credits that they revealed. And if it's his, then he's got to be. Well, I mean, to be fair, like, if you if you read, like, the Star Trek novels, they're actually pretty good. So they're better than the show. Yeah. So, I mean, I haven't read any Voyager novels, but at least in the next gen and the original series are pretty good. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I trust that. We'll see. I mean, like, the fact that they got Patrick Stewart, like, interested, and he was willing to come back after almost 20 years. Like, get that money! Yeah. My fucking albino! <laughs> Man, the f- people have zoned out. They're like, why the fuck are you guys talking about Star Trek? Didn't that shit I'll end? I'll whittle this down to three minutes. How, how long did we just talk about Star Trek? 21 minutes. Oh, good. <laughs>
with Michael J. Gutierrez and Brian Bernard Benet. Hello, everybody out there in podcast land. It is once again the Movie Movie Podcast with Brian Bernard Murnane and my co-host, partner in crime and frenemy, Michael <laughs> Gutierrez. Hello. Hello, Michael. How are you? Great, man. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. Yeah, it was a dark week, as I told you. So. Oh, shit. Yeah. yeah. But I'm good now. We'll see. Well, I mean, I, I got, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's going on with my life and career right now. That'll just keep you, well, no, you had a good, you had a... Doesn't mean anything. Not yet. Okay. Nothing means anything, Michael. Yeah, I guess you're right. Nothing means anything. I was, I'll tell you off, off Mike. I don't want to say it because I don't want to, because by the time this comes out, I would have gotten the rejection email that I didn't get this thing that I applied <laughs> for. So I'll just, anyway, I'll double down later Was on. the first round a spec? And then yeah. the second round's a pilot? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think you'll be all right. I just thought it was nice that Nickelodeon's fellows got like a press release. Yeah, yeah. Like they're they're the semifinalists get a press release. Oh, that's nice. You we didn't get that. No, no, we didn't get a press release. Let's <laughs> just say you just got stick that. Stick that in your resume. <laughs> well, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna tell anybody anything. Yeah, until it, until like until deadline. Like unless I make it, I'm not gonna tell people I almost made it. Well, if he makes it, guys, there will probably never be. Another episode of the Movie Movie Podcast. We will That's lose you can, Michael to no, the Hollywood like, machine. Stop. They're going to chew him up, grind him up, mm. and, and turn him into... Oh, that will happen, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the Tyler Perry Netflix anthology why, series. Why would you... You can't aim higher for me. It can't be like Jordan Peele's Twilight Zone or no, Gargoyles. No, It has to be Tyler Perry's Netflix whatever. It's going to be Netflix Tyler Perry's whatever. Netflix whatever. Oh, it's man. literally going to be called that. <laughs> Tyler Perry's Netflix whatever. They're spending $8 billion on 700 programs next year. Doubling down. <laughs> so why not? Like that's If you're Apple and you, you've just become, in this past week, they just became the first trillion dollar company. Yeah. And allegedly they're getting in the streaming. Like, I heard one analysis, some, you know, expert, you know, take it for what it is on some podcast. And he was saying, like, Apple doesn't have the experience or the infrastructure to be able to support streaming anything. And so for them to get into it at this point, they'd be so far in the red for a long time before they got into the black that they may not even pursue it. I don't know. Uh, Apple has tricked most of us into buying nine different adapters for one product, right? Like... I think they'll figure. They have some pretty good programming coming, don't yeah. they? They have some huge hitters, and they have good. They have good names. I mean, they have good people that know what they're doing. From yeah. coming from the studio system in Hollywood, they have people that have a you know plethora of experience. I think that analysis is a foolish mentality based on five years ago when no one knew how to build a streaming platform, like Yahoo. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I remember going on Netflix and just browsing their original programming and realizing that most of what they produce is crap. Yeah, of course. Like, yeah. most of it is. Like, all the stuff that we know, like House of Cards, uh, Orange is the New Black, Glow, like, it's such a small percentage of what of the program that they actually put out. Oh, it's yeah. Like, holy shit. And not even that it's crap. There's probably stuff hidden in there that's probably fantastic that we have no idea. Apparently, like, Stranger Things, I was listening to David Harbour on What the Fuck, and he talks about how they buried it originally because they wow. thought it was going to fail. And then it came out of nowhere, and they pretended like that was their, their their plan the whole time was like a disruptive ad campaign, and it became their yeah number one thing. 
Oh man, this is really exciting yeah. conversation. <laughs> We're talking about new streaming platforms. Yeah, and the future of television. Woo, baby, is this what happens on Sunday afternoons? Yeah, that's right. Oh my god. Oh well, this that will dovetail nicely then to this week's episode. Did you enjoy this week? Uh, enjoy. I remind everybody, this is not a film criticism podcast. Oh, is that me? <laughs> Is that supposed to be me? It's not supposed to be you. No, I gave I gave it a good voice. For oh, thanks. Here, let me hear you talk for a little bit. Oh, thanks. No, no. I, I want to build. <laughs> I'm flamboyant now. No, I'm, I didn't get that. I'm flamboyant now. I need a little more. I gotta download the files. No. no, 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 no. What is this? What is this? What is this? What is this? <laughs> I'm Jerry Seinfeld. I'm Jerry now? Seinfeld now. <laughs> How old are you? How old are you? There we go. That's good. Okay. <laughs> I want to remind everybody this is not a film criticism podcast. No, that came off a little uh, Urkelish. <laughs> anyway. I'm going to eat my Slim Jim. I'm going to eat my Slim Jim. Hi, this is Michael. Michael J. Gutierrez. This week we had two films. So this week, did you enjoy this week? It's, um, let me finish what's in my mouth. <laughs> For the, view, the listeners at home, I brought Michael a Slim Jim this week. I was so kind good. enough. So good. To bring him a honey barbecue <laughs> so I could sit across the desk and fucking suffer the wafting fumes. Oh my god. It's so good. Did I enjoy it? Well, this is not a film criticism podcast. So it's not about... <laughs> this is not a film criticism podcast. <laughs> so this week, guys, we did two films that could be more different from each other. More diametrically opposed from each other. We did... 1992's classic Bruce Niebar's The Buttercream Gang. And we paired it up with 2014 Justin Simeon's Dear White People. Michael, my pick was The Buttercream Gang. Your pick was Dear White People. I think last week you went first. I never can remember. I don't remember. All right, so. No, I'm sorry. I can't remember. Is that me? No, that's me. Doing, doing, impre- me. doing doing my impression of your impression of, of me. you. So so now I'll do my impression of your impression of my impression of you. Is that close? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. So this week, Michael, you made me watch uh, Dear White People just to I see. Made you watch well, well, I, I'm saying that in a way that I made you watch that you wanted to put me in a position where I am going to have to navigate this minefield. Dear White People is a film, a satire, I would say, based in reality, based off the USC Compton cookout. I think that's the origin of the idea of this film. In oh, which, I didn't know that. Yeah, in which uh, fraternity had a party that was called a Compton Cookout, and of course, dumbass white people showed up in blackface, thinking it's hilarious. Dear White People is about a pseudo-Ivy League school. I don't think it's all, all the way there. A fictional school named Winchester. Yeah, it's certainly a historically black college. Is that is that what it was going for in the movie? Yeah. Ah, yeah. I didn't get that. Yeah. All right. So a historically black I mean, it's a fictional college. school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, named Winchester University. That makes a lot more sense because I had a question about something, and I and I was thinking. I, was I hope I'm not wrong about that, but I think it's a historically black home. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah. yeah. So it's a school in which uh, it's a Ivy League pseudo Ivy League school, and what happens is different 
I, I would guess versions of the Black Id and Psyche uh, exist within the school. You've got your you've got your militant blacks. You've got your uh, supposed what you would call, I guess, white black people. You've got your people like you who are just people <laughs> who are not defined by their color. And then you've got evil white people, and they're all people. It's all about people playing roles. So everyone's defined by their roles in the school. And what happens is racial tensions overflow, but not in a do the right thing kind of way, in a satirical look at the sensitivities of the modern millennial and trying to define themselves in a specific role. That's the best I could do. I think that's a fair assessment. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, Michael, tell us about... The Buttercream Gang. The Buttercream Gang is a film about a group of friends that are uh, kind of like your neighborhood do-gooders. Um, I never knew any people like this in my neighborhood. Me neither. Or anywhere else. Uh, Outside of Missouri, I don't think these people exist. Yeah, and these are very Midwestern kids. <laughs> and they're going out, you know, they're 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 going to help uh, old ladies that have fallen down. They're, they're... Old Lady Jenkins has fallen down again! I was crying. <laughs> so, um... Uh, one no, of, Widower Jenkins. Widower oh, Jenkins has fallen down again! Oh, I didn't catch that. And instead of calling an ambulance, they tie a rope to a tree and swing to her balcony. I want to know how that little girl knew that she had fallen down. I know! Because it's like, did that little girl have a key or did she get locked out? And then the Buttercream <laughs> gang had to create this makeshift pulley, which they were very, very happy to do and like knew how they did Call an ambulance! There's like 18 people in that town and yeah. it's like a mile long. Call a professional, not these 12-year-olds climbing fucking ropes to help Widower Jenkins. And, and then when they got the Widow, widow uh, Jank- Jenkins, there was no blood. No. She, had just, she had just slipped. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Would you like some treats? Get, get a treat on your way out. Treats. It's so yeah. many treats in this town. Oh, man. So it's a story. So the Buttercream Gang are, is a group of do-getter kids that are you know between the ages of, I'd say, 9 to 12, maybe yeah. 13. The original leader of the Buttercream Gang a gentleman by the name of Pete. Pete. Um, Pete goes to the big city. Uh, I'm unclear why he's going there, other than to help out his. Is it his aunt? Yeah, it's another his, family member. Yeah, yeah. And so he goes to the big city, which is Chicago. <laughs> so I don't know where the Buttercream Gang. I don't know where the city so is. So I guess they live in Illinois. I bet they live in Illinois. Okay, that's yeah. fair. Yeah, because it, it's because he goes to and from pretty quickly. Like yeah. it's a bus ride away. Yeah. So he goes to Chicago, and Pete comes back. From Chicago, because his aunt has seen that he's gone with the wrong crowd. He's running with the wrong crowd. And uh, he goes back to the Buttercream Gang, and they realize... Crit, or, is it Chris? The, uh, the, 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 the other main kid? kid? Yeah, the main kid. Yeah, I think it's so Chris. So Chris, Chris had... He was the second in command of the Buttercream Gang. <laughs> Once Pete left, he became the leader. <laughs> Scott. Scott, I'm sorry. Scott. Scott. Yeah, you're right. Scott. So Scott is the first one that kind of gets like a, an inclination that there's something wrong with Pete. Like not... Pete is dressed like a vato now and going by his original last name Valdez yeah. out of nowhere. And also referring to his clothes as threads, so he's using <laughs> 1950s lingo. Um, and he's he's dressed he's dressed and these are all white kids. And he's dressing like a minority, so there might be I don't we don't know what happened to him in Chicago. We just know he ran with the wrong crowd. And so there through a number of different misadventures and trials and tribulations, you Scott has to lead the Buttercream Gang against the the arm the armed forces that is uh, Pete and his gang. 
And um, and I don't even know where Pete's the other members of Pete's gang came from. I don't know if they're lo- local neighborhood kids. Yeah, they're kids at oh. the high school. He sees them walk down the stairs, and he's like, "Those look like assholes. I'm gonna start hanging out with them." And you know, they do all. And we'll we'll go into details about what they exactly did. But um, uh, several times, Pete challenges Scott to a fist fight, and Scott. Basically defeats him with diplomacy, yeah. with with uh, uh, nonviolent protest, right? Right. That the, his pastor encouraged him to do because that's what Gandhi did, and also Gandhi was assassinated, but he left that part out. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so anyway, long story short, Pete, or I'm sorry, Scott tries to pull Pete back over to the good side and and to pull him away from his life of crime, and Pete is resistant the whole film. But because uh, of Scott's example, he uh, follows suit, and we find out at the end of the film that um, Pete not only goes back to Chicago, Pete also becomes a community, a community leader and starts his own uh, buttercream gang in Chicago. And they're doing... Which in Chicago 1992, he would come to school with that and he'd get shot promptly. Well, I, I assume that uh, they just didn't let him read that part of the article. <laughs> mid-sentence where's the rest of this article oh don't worry about it pete's in a better place yeah. <laughs> uh so i don't know how's that summary for, for the film it's wonderful <laughs> and i will say if you couldn't tell already this film is christian propaganda like it's a film made by by a christian organization yep and it's very clearly trying to push the message message of if you venture out of the outside the church you will be corrupted. <laughs> you will become a minority. You will be no good. Because <laughs> there are no minorities in this town. No. Whatsoever. It is the it's so white it made me feel like I was I, I had racism coming at me. And like and, and Pete like and Pete even recognizes that, right? Like he he goes and bunch of nobodies in this nowhere town! <laughs> Why was he talking like <laughs> I mean, last week we were talking about uh, Jimmy, James Cagney. This guy is fucking talking how I imagine James Cagney, sp- Cagney spoke in his movies, and was so upset that nobody would 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 tussle with him. Like he was so angry. Like he would go and rob the store. Why aren't you calling the police? Why aren't you? You know, like he you got something wrong with your brain, old man. You're not supposed to just give me the money and say, now it's not a robbery. I'm gonna destroy this place. And clearly, also. People in this town knew who he was, and they just weren't taking him seriously as yeah. this gangster. And I think that's why the shopkeeper's like, well, I know your grandfather. I'll just get the money back. Yeah. Like, yeah. And he's like, oh, I'm a tough guy. I'm, you know, and then, and, and then there's this little girl that... That, 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 that actor who plays Pete, his name is uh, uh, Michael D. Weathered, right? And in 1999, he's in a movie in which his name, his character name is Chicago Pete. Oh, and here's here's what the movie's about. Two former friends become enemies when one is secretly turning in criminals and the other is the head of a youth gang. Wow. Same universe or just same creators? No. no. Is this like a El Mariachi? Oh, it's the same director. Okay. I was going to ask, is this like an El Mariachi Desperado situation? Like you just remake the movie, the first movie yeah. you, you made, which you have a bigger re- budget? This was my first experience of seeing a shitty movie and falling head over heels in love with how bad it is. 
and laughing my ass off, like watching it constantly because I was like, this is insanity. Everything about this is insane and, and loving how bad and insane it was. So the Buttercream Gang is like my, my bad movie cherry pop. That's why it's on the fucking list. I was disappointed that I couldn't, it's not readily available. Yeah, and we had to watch a shitty version of it on YouTube that yeah. like, it's, it's sped up. You notice that? Like it's right. 0. 0.3 times too fast. And the camera angles are really, like, blown out and everything. But, yeah, a regular good quality version of that with a room full of people who are shit-faced be a great time. It'd be a great time. Yeah. I mean, my wife kept asking, why are we Why are we watching this? Uh-huh. What is Brian having us watch? Why are we watching this? Why is this still on? Why isn't this over yet? And I'll tell you what the turning point for her and I was. Was well, we thought that Scott was a pussy. Uh-huh. And we thought he was going to roll over. And he basically goes up to this gangster with the power of Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Which part? When he crashes the bike into him? No. It, uh, I think it was after that. When uh-huh. he just basically tells him, like... Yeah, it's after the dance. So after the firework. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And he's it, like, I'm going to come fight you? Well, and he's like, yeah, well, meet me outside. And then he goes up and, he's, and he says, I'm not afraid of you. And, like, you're not expecting that turn from Scott. Like, you're expecting, like, he's going to throw down. Yeah. That he's going to, like, try and fight Pete in some way, shape, or form. The fact that he wouldn't give Pete what he wanted. The satisfaction of, right. yeah, of an ass kicking. Yeah, like, he basically said to him, you, you threaten me and try to embarrass me in front of this girl that likes me. I'm not afraid of you. I challenge you to go swim with me in this quarry. <laughs> yeah, let's go fishing. Let's, and go like, f- let's have an old, old-fashioned old time like last summer. And Pete is just like, yeah, I can do that. I'm not chicken. I can, I can, be, a, I can be a bitch too. Like, he just agrees to it. Yeah, and then like has a great time in the montage. Uh-huh. And then pretends that he doesn't. He's like, I'm still going to, I'm still willing, I'm going to beat your ass still. Yeah. Uh, is that a threat? No, it's a promise. Oh, yeah. Great line, though. That's a great... They say it twice. It's yeah. a great call and response. Yeah. It's great. It's fantastic. And that faux Cat Stevens song they have in the the Christian fake Cat Stevens music. Well, so, now that we've... <laughs> what is your thesis? Where do you see Dear White People and, and the Buttercream Gang converging? Well, I think that both films are very much about... What... what, what <laughs> <laughs> I think I think both films have protagonists that are trying to find um trying to find us a, a, a reason to let me collect my thoughts. <laughs> I actually had it this this morning when I was watching Dear White People. Both Sam and Scott are both people that lead groups or lead groups and are in leadership positions and they have to make um, sense of the um, the expectations of being in those positions. So, so Sam is Samantha White, played by Tessa Thompson mm-hmm. in Dear White People. She is of mixed race, or as her uh, TA calls her, constantly a mulatto. Or not constantly, but says it enough times that you're like, well, well I haven't heard that fucking word in a long time. But she is basically in an identity crisis trying to figure out which shades of her skin color that she needs to define herself by and has defined herself as kind of a militant black leader, right? Like, militant's not the right word. Militant's kind of like, that's like a negative connotation. But like, 
a a controversial right. black leader, and she's the the person who delivers the titular line, "Dear white people." She has a YouTube or radio series mm-hmm. called "Dear White People," in which she calls us out for our shitty dancing and for touching their hair. Yeah, and and you look at I think both of those characters leading their respective groups and being uh, folks are looking up to them. Uh, they're constantly both both Sam and. And Scott are looking for consoles so that they can better deal with the issues that are that keep coming up. So with with Sam, it's how do I deal with racism and be able to articulate that without feeling like a sellout. With um, with Scott, it's how do I articulate and communicate to my friends that this one friend is corrupt and how can I help him? How can I save him? Um, and continually talking to his pastor and talking to his parents about what is happening with his friend and talking to the other members of the buttercream gang. Like this is what's happening with Pete. How can we help him? You know, um, and constantly reaching that out. And they both, both protagonists continually like try different methods, right? They don't try the same method, uh, in both in, in either film. They're constantly trying to, they're doing a lot of, um, uh, trial and error. Sure. You know, um, and Sam, even at the end of her movie, doesn't find like a clear cut, you know, lack of a better term, clear cut black and white way to deal with it. She finds a way that works for her. And the same thing is true with Scott. Like Scott, like they both think that they failed up to a certain point. And then there's this reveal that they didn't quite fail and it wasn't all for naught. Like there was like Scott working with Pete and reaching out to him. Pete did hear him eventually. And the same thing is true with Sam with the other folks that... <clears throat> that she talks to and you know amongst the other houses and even after that whole issue with the um you know the racist uh party after party and whatnot there is a compromise there do you think it, it sam is in the in the right throughout the film and 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 do you think she's making those drastic choices for the people or for herself or has no idea even why she's making those I th- I think I think it's all of it. Yeah. Because whenever you're living what you know being a person of color, you don't have there is no set there's no definitive way to deal with anything. Sure. So I think it's all of it. I think it's her we're watching her figure it out. Like it's 2 hours of her figuring out what her voice is and how to deal with these these issues. And you and as, you know just like any decision in life, like you get all these different variables that impact your decision. So she went out with a certain ideology, but then that she has to pivot a little bit because, well, I got this other piece of information that isn't quite like what I thought it was. And I can no longer believe what I thought because now I have this information that's contradicting the original uh, point of view that I had. So I got to pivot a little bit. All right. Well, I'm not going to listen. I'm just going to I'm going to I'm going to try and streamline and just have it be black and white. Oh, I can't quite do that because this and this are happening. And now this person's asking for my help. And if I don't help this person, then I'll look like a sellout. But if I look like a sellout, then, then I'm a hypocrite. Can't be a hypocrite. I got to, you know, so I think it's all of it. I don't think it's just one. I don't think it's any definitive path. Well, and that's, and so my, my link between the two movies, uh, is this idea of self-honesty, self-discovery, and being honest with the people around you, Rather than conforming, you know, the Buttercream Gang (laughs) offers up this idea that conforming towards positive ways or things like that 
in one way is good, but is is saying you have to follow your own path and have to be true to yourself. Right. And I think Dear White People really argues that point. I don't know if any of the characters are that positive. I know that uh, what's his name, the 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 evil white guy, uh, Kurt. He is the straight up villain. They they don't really give him as much grayness about his character we're we're supposed to look at him as an antagonist where the rest of the protagonists all operate in this weird realm where you don't necessarily disagree or agree with them at least from my point of view i'm gonna have to say that a lot uh but (laughs) you don't necessarily agree or disagree with them even who i i think the best character is lionel that's the gay questioning Mm -hmm. gay black kid uh lionel is played by tyler james williams who was the chris on everybody hates chris and he plays a large, afroed, bespectacled, uh, gay ex-philosophy major who's trying to make his way onto the newspaper and still discovering his voice. And he's, I wouldn't say he's, he self-hates his, his blackness. I think it's everyone else thinks he does. Because at one moment, what does he say? I like Robert Altman films and Mumford and Sons. Mm-hmm. And he's like, he's he's not projecting his character onto anybody else. Where everyone else's problem is... They're projecting their idea of their character, their idea of whiteness, their idea of blackness, their idea of being Asian. Where Lionel is this one character who doesn't have to project that, is comfortable with who he is. Even the gayness, he's comfortable with it. It's it's not like he's struggling with it until it gets to a point where this awful fucking racist party happens and he he becomes destructive. He, he can't figure out how to rectify this situation inside his head. But... All that happens, he, he's basically put into that position because of all the machinations of all the other characters. Right. So he's been honest with himself the whole time, and it's all these other characters who won't admit what they really are on the inside because they're playing roles for authority figures, mm-hmm. for friends, for society's sake, aren't being individuals. They're being uh, just uh, uh, swaths, right? And that's and I think they both both movies are saying... Be the individual that you are. Understand what's really inside you. Don't don't put on a front. You know, like yeah, and also like uh, additionally, like none of us are monoliths. So you know, uh, race. You know, being black is not a monolith. We're not all the same. They're all different shades of black. I feel like, but in the Buttercream Gang, it's the same thing. Like they're not all the same. <laughs> they <laughs> There's all... different shades of white. <laughs> White's not a monolith. <laughs> but, you know, but they all, they're all good in different ways. Sure. And Pete lost his way and had to be reminded of that constantly. And I really Sc- want to know what happened to him in Chicago. He, he says to Sky, he's like, you know what? You say you're my friend. You never even asked me what happened in Chicago. You're just like the rest of them. My wife, she's going to hate this. But when he said that, my wife was like, he was raped. In prison? <laughs> yeah. I was like, wow. You got the wrong guy. Yeah, it's like whoa. <laughs> yeah, I, and I I think uh, what's interesting too is is having a uh, seeing the conflict between both Sam and Scott as to what's the right thing to do here. Sure, and uh, and and kind of abandoning their their morality, right? Because they don't flat out say it's a Christian story. You know, even buttercream gang. Yeah, yeah, but like, uh, it's, it's got pastors. It's yeah. got church music. It's got I mean, parables. And so, you know, Scott is trying to figure out. Okay, well, I had this sense of morality. I thought I knew what the rules were, and now I have this uh, 
you know, my friend is like the personification of the, a huge contradiction to him. In a lot of ways, he's the devil, right? And he's the guy who introduced me, who became, right. who was my best friend and was the leader of our our Widower Jenkins <laughs> outreach group. And you look at Sam and it's like, Sam, I'm sure, learned a lot from that TA. He knows her very well. And he tell. I mean, at one point he tells her, like, this isn't you. Like, you're into X, Y, Z. And, like, you're not, you know... Uh, and she doesn't d- dispute any of it. She she sits there and she listens. And but, but she's the cause of the invites to the party, right? Right. So there's something about Sam where I don't know if she's trying to do the right thing. Once she admits that she's an anarchist and and she she kind of follows that path, is it the right thing? I'm not sure. Is Lionel knocking over those speakers and destroying the DJ table the right thing? I'm not sure. Is it the wrong thing? I'm not sure. And that's there's so much uh, ambiguous nature yeah, about yeah. all the characters and everything they go through in Dear White People that I'm not 100% sure how I feel about any of them. I I, I, I know I hate Kurt and, and his group, and even if it wasn't because of their overt racial overtones, it was just because those are the kind of white people I hate. I'm a class warrior, and those are the motherfuckers I hate. But <clears throat> everyone else, you know, Troy... I kind of hate him almost as much as I hate Kurt. I feel for Sam in her struggle, and but I still, by the end of it, I kind of dislike her too. Lionel is the one guy I feel bad for, and I like to follow his journey. But I'm not sure about any of the characters. Well, I think Coco is an interesting character. Oh, Coco, yeah. Oh. I Coco I like. Like, do you watch the TV show? I haven't yet. Yeah, they do a great job of like expanding that character. Not that... They're they're not necessarily the same universe. They're two separate things, but that's a different discussion. But what's interesting about Coco is that there is an element of in the black community where you do have those of us that um, feel the way Coco does, where we understand that there's all these bad stereotypes. We understand that all the odds are against us. So if you can't beat them, let's join them. You know, and that's basically where where Pete's coming from, right? Pete went to Chicago. Whatever happened to him, we don't know. <laughs> Something happened to him in Chicago. You got the wrong guy! Did you hear me? You got the wrong guy! Something happened to him. He's being arrested. You just hear glass smash. He's running down that alleyway. And it's it's easier to... Because in some way, you know, when you're raised in the church or in a sheltered environment, because I had a lot of friends that this happened to, and you go out into the real world and you come back home, you almost feel like you're lied to. Yeah, that's I, I was in Catholic school up until third grade, and this was we're past the point where nuns would beat your fingers with with rulers, but they would still look at you with that that gleam. Yeah. Right. My older brother at one point had a, a tail, you know, the little rat tail or whatever, and the priest cut it off, and so it wasn't a fun place to be. But you kind of paid for the grade, so you'd get straight A's no matter what. It was like that kind of place. And once we became poor or no longer could afford. It was like Jesus loves all the little children except the, the ones that don't have money. You guys could just come on Sunday and donate what you can, but we're not going to let you in our school. And I went to public school, and in public school it was like a holy shit, wait a second. And it was by, I think, fifth grade, then I read Alice in Wonderland. And then by sixth and seventh and eighth grade, I'm reading Great Gatsby and Catcher in the Rye and these other things. And, and by high school, Vonnegut. And, and so all of a sudden, everything that Catholic school had shown me, the only thing I really took away from it was... The Bible's a really cool fucking book, and it's a really great written story, and I really love the way stories work. But outside of that, 
I don't know. You guys are a bunch of fucking psychopaths. Yeah, and and especially like with, and I can't speak to the biracial experience, but I could speak to experiences of family members and friends that are biracial. Whereas there is this, like I, for example, I have I have a, I have a set of cousins, and their um their mom, my aunt, is Coco, and she married a white man that have these biracial kids because she felt. That white was better, and she raised her kids to believe that because, uh, like, after the civil rights movement, that's what Coco thinks. White is better. I think she's. Op- I think she's optimistic that that white is better. I think that she doesn't necessarily believe that in her heart of hearts, but she is optimistic that it's got to be better than this. If I can I affiliate with with that culturally, we're first introduced to Coco is her getting into the school, mm-hmm. right? And she's talking with the administrator, yeah, or something like that, and. She mentions where she's from in Chicago, and he and he he adorns a new voice, a different kind of voice from what the way he was. Oh, it's not an administrator; it's a producer for a reality show. Okay. Oh, yeah. So and right. he and he changes her his voice. He's right. talking to her, just talking to her, and then she says, "Here's where I'm from, in Chicago." And he says, "Where?" And she says, "78th Street, I think." Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, he's like, "78th Street." Well, you know, huh, you could take the hood out the girl, and she's like, "There's nothing hood about me." Right. And. So I don't know if it's white is better or if she doesn't like the connotations of that, that, that hood mentality that just because she's black doesn't mean she's hood black, you know? Right. Just because I'm poor white doesn't mean I'm white trash. Right. I mean, I am, but... <laughs> yeah, but for... Uh, I, I believe, because for a lot of... Um, uh, not a lot. Or, I mean, some. Some black folks think that if I can um, affiliate myself with white culture, then I am better... Uh, just already have a step up then i then i'm welcomed into these spaces they'll let me uh then i can marry into these white families then i get some uh, then i can get white wealth you know and i i can can have a better life than where i came from so what i was going to say about my cousins is that uh they were taught that post-civil rights movement racism in this country does not exist right and uh, my aunt is from england she's not from here so when she moved here she doesn't know anything about racism in america there's a, there's racism in england but it's just constructed in, in a different way uh than it is here so my cousin when she went to college and she traveled the world she came home and she felt betrayed because she was not equipped with the skills to uh, combat racism because she didn't she had never experienced it before her mom had never shared her experiences of racism and so um she was she was like you know what like I'm going to go and, and try and be a good, a good person and learn from my experiences. And then her uh, younger sister just held on to the morals that her mom had instilled in her. That, sure. That racism doesn't exist and that she can pass for white, which she can't. And um, well, she can. Or she can't. can't. Oh, okay. She can't. It just okay. feels like Coco, by the end of the movie, with all her moves, she's Machiavellian mm-hmm. in that she doesn't. She doesn't care about the black or the white side. It almost feels like she puts all of that effort into doing what she does to fuck them all over. She like she put all the gunpowder in the in the bomb to make it explode at the end. But I feel like she she makes herself a victim by the end, right? But, but I feel she makes all that happen. I think she comes to that conclusion. I don't think initially that's what she sought out to do, right? Like she saw what was happening. Hence, her giving those new video vlogs and kind of pandering. Yeah, get she changes her voice. Right, she she does become the hood person. Right. Yeah, because here's an advantage I can have. This is it's same thing is true. Going back to the Buttercream Gang, 
Pete looks at the advantages he could have if he takes the easy route. Mm-hmm. Look at how much easier it is just to rob a store. I don't have to. Uh, I don't have to work forty hours a week. I don't have I don't, to pick Widow or Jenkins up no, off the floor. No, I could just rob the store. I could get the money, and then I can, you know. I mean, the fact that like he and his buddies took the time. The fuck over Scott and his paper route? That was at least six hours. <laughs> Collecting like, all the papers right, and putting like, them in a pile? Yeah, and like, and, and Scott, <laughs> like, and I don't know how much of it was like Scott was really legitimately upset as, as much as it was like, you guys took the time to do this? <laughs> like, just to, like, just to affect me. You like, guys are the worst bullies. Right, like, like. What else are we supposed to do? We set the one cat the town had on fire. We can't keep robbing old man Stevenson at all day, every day. There's nothing else for us to do. Because that would be fixed in an hour, right? Like, yeah. Scott would just tell his dad, like, hey, these assholes did this. Okay, well, let's go in my car and we can deliver them back yeah, again. Yeah. And then it's done in an hour. So then the, all that, anyway. Um, so, uh, but I don't, I don't think Coco initially sought that out. Sure. And once she got to the, the party, she realized almost immediately, like, holy shit. Like, especially when she was being made fun of. And and they, she saw what was what was happening and, and the way that this party was was portraying African Americans. She was like, I I really don't want to be a part of this. Um, and it, you know, Scott looking at Pete, like it's almost like Scott is looking at his friend, and he very easily could be like that's where he could be if he makes the wrong move, right? And you could kind of see like he's got Scott's got a little bit of an edge. Like yeah. he he could go that way. He's not all goody goody t She's like he, he was willing to fight. You yeah, know? And yeah. Even though his way of fighting was diplomacy, like he wasn't backing down from anything, and and Pete probably had the similar sensibilities, but because he had this one bad experience and it, it put him down this path, now he has to reinvent himself. Right. right. You know, Scott wound up signing up for the army the day after after September 11th, and now probably still lives in Illinois. Uh, in a no trailer legs. with PTSD. No yeah. legs has three kids. Yeah, uh, works as a greeter at Walmart. <laughs> oh God, I support our troops. As do I. I know. I know. Family, family like, uh, in the, the armed forces. The image we just built made me feel bad <laughs> because it's accurate. <laughs> because it's accurate. So, Dear White People is Justin Simeon's first film. Yeah, correct. And that's. One thing I re- I enjoyed about it is you don't see a lot of you don't see a lot of black films, right? Uh, they talk about it in there of wh- what films they they, they they go to the vista and mm-hmm. what films yeah, are the they could see. It was great to see that uh, even black individuals in making films in, in making indie films fall into the same specific indie tropes. I, I it's it's interesting like. I don't understand why there's so many insert shots of buildings. At a certain point, like 45 minutes into the movie, I'm like, enough. I know where we are. Like, you're showing... I got it. White faces adorn all these these walls. Now it just looks like you're padding the movie for some reason. And there's, like, weird camera angles. There's this point where Tessa Thompson at the end is talking to her TA and they're doing the apology thing. And the camera, like, pulls in, right? And then it's got him in frame. No, it pulls in from the other side, and, and it has him in frame, and it's like, all right, that's a perfect angle. And then it just doesn't stop, and then it stops, and it's like, you can see, like, it stop. And then, like, Tessa's doing her great emotional beat, and the camera zooms in on her, mm-hmm. and it's too slow, and it, then it stops. And it's these weird, like... Technical. Yeah, yeah, technical stuff that, like, that's... I think the movie... I like the movie... But I, I, there's, there's a pacing issue. There's, it's a little boring with just the camera work. The camera work is, it's, it's great to see someone who probably he probably went to USC, didn't he? 
went to Chapman. Chapman, yeah. It's someone who went through, who, who, who this is their, their first attempt fall into the same indie tropes that a white director would fall into. See, we're all the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what you're trying to say? Yeah, See, exactly. we're all the same. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, what I appreciated about this movie is you, you watch, like, a Spike Lee movie. Right? right. Now we're turning to film critique podcast. But, but, but uh, We have no angle here. <laughs> but, you, you know, you look at a, a Spike Lee movie, and a lot of issues I have with the third act of his films, and I haven't seen uh, Black uh, Klansman yet. But he, he, he's very, very, very heavy with the message that he's trying to tell in that respective story. So much so that he basically is done with that story, with telling that aspect or, or exploring those themes by the end of the second act. Yeah, he's never and, exploring the characters. Yeah. He's exploring exactly what he wants to say, and it doesn't matter if he sacrifices the characters to make that point. And then the third act, you get all these these bumpy a little bit, because you have all these choices that he makes to try and make something happen. It just feels like weird. Uh, in terms of the technical aspects, I mean, the issue that I have is that the, th- the third act, like, I-, I almost feel like the story should have ended at the party. Well, and that's, but, and it's the cinematic language that I think fucks it up, is that you watch Lionel's character get to this destructive point when he gives that freestyle rap, amazing. When he kisses Kurt, amazing. I almost don't buy him knocking over the speakers and destroying the tables, because, the energy of the camera work isn't there to justify those moments. Right. And you feel that in the movie. There are these lulls, that these shot-reverse shots, these very weird angles that, I don't know if he was trying to be artistic, like on staircases and shit, that just don't plain work. So you get to these boiling moments mm-hmm. that aren't sold as well as they, they could have been. The, the, the story is there. The characters are there. The dialogue is really there. And none of that is serviced that well by the camera work i think the editing of the party with the the inner cuts of the masks and, and the people in blackface wonderful stuff but it's yeah that, that camera work that is kind of sloppy and kind of boring you know it's it's interesting because the tv show like begins with that party and uh-huh. he he reimagines the whole thing huh so i'd be interested in hearing what you think of how he how he redoes it, especially after watching the film. I, it uh, needs a little more energy. Like, give it a, a steroid or two. Like, bring it up because it feels manic what's going mm-hmm. on. And that's why it's kind of hard to also follow what's going on. To know if it is a, a historically black school. Which I think it is because every single one of the houses are named after jazz musicians. Mm. E- including the school itself. Winchester is also it's a rifle and a jazz musician from the early 1900s. So it must be a historical black thing. but And that's another trope of of where, like, yeah, you named all the houses jazz musicians and the school after a jazz musician. Why? Like, it's a cute move, but right. why? It doesn't service anything. It's just cute. It's like it's like there's so much in Garden State that's like, that's cute. It's cute, <laughs> but like, State. yeah, but yeah. like that, that's the prototypical, like, stupid fucking indie moves. And it's just like... You're getting it out of your system because you're a young dude and you think, like, he's probably, what was he, like, 26 when we made this? 28, something like that? He's a little older than that. Yeah. Because I, I think he's only a couple of years older than we are. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. But you know what I mean. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's hard to grasp those 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 aspects because of the, the editing and the camera work. Is, is to know, is it a historically black school? I didn't get that that she was a, that guy was a reality producer. I didn't realize, and this is my second time watching it. I saw it in theaters when it came out. But I, I didn't realize that 
they're literally telling you that Sam is the one who sent out the invites. There's just things that are hard to grasp because the way the how boring the camera is. Right. Yeah. And now let's talk about the camera work and the production value oh, of Buttercream Gang. Gang. <laughs> there is no need. Well, also because we couldn't watch a real quality version of that's it. That's true. That's it, it is tough. It is tough to assess because you can right. say they they wrote a boilerplate, well written script. Not well written, but like hit everything. Yeah, hit to hit. It's yeah. very much uh, Sid Field. Yeah, yeah. yeah like, like you could teach that to a screenwriting class. Right. And like you want to see how you get a character from point A to point C? We'll show you right here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there are like. T- Plenty of throw throwaway lines where it's like, "Hey, hey, uh, Grandpa, Pete's Grandpa." It's like, "Oh, kids, I can't talk. Talk to you later." Okay, bye. <laughs> you know, and it's just like, "What the hell is that?" What's the point? You of know, that? it's it's interesting because there is both kind of like a angel on one shoulder and devil on the other, like aspect of both of these, right? Like Sam can go this way uh-huh. with the TA, and 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 everything's all right, and. You know, I mean, I don't know if that character would say "all lives matter" is in such a bad phrase. I don't know. But the TA, yeah, you know he would. But, but that's co- one of that. He's a pandering, bleeding heart. I, I, I don't, I don't see color. And <laughs> I didn't say color. I no, just no, said, no, no, no. I'm saying he oh, would say he oh, would say something like, that. "Oh yeah, of course." And yeah. so I could go this way, or I could go the the route of uh, you know try and be Angela Davis and lead this militant group of with, black with people. Reggie. Uh, yeah, and and Reggie said. Robert Altman's my shit. He really goes in. <laughs> and also with, uh, there's a scene in Buttercream Gang where Scott very much has that, right? He is trying to be focused and do the right thing on the baseball field. And who and who's at the gate? <laughs> Pete is just kind of getting in his ear and like gets in his head. And it, and it, and it, it really, it gets to Scott. And it's unclear whether or not it cost them the game. I think it did. But it was a big. Cha- it was a championship game, right? Yeah, and I think they lost. Okay, but like no one, no one actually said that. He was just in the dugout by himself. But the 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 announcer, the insanely professional announcer for this small town Illinois baseball game, says like that was their last chance to take back the lead. So I think yeah. I think they lost. Yeah, and it made it sound like it was all Scott's fault. Yeah, yeah. Well, because- he gets kicked out of the game because of his violent outburst. Oh man! Yeah, and then he yells at that gr- that grandfather, like yeah. his grandfather. And then he goes, "Sorry, <laughs> sorry, it's not your fault. <laughs> you can send him back to Chicago." Yeah, and that's not really an insult or anything mean. No, it's just like they, they kick him out of the game. Yeah, it's like your grandson's like fucking all of us over. Please send him back to that <laughs> that place where he got these bad habits. This place was basically Pleasantville before yeah, he came back. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, like that t- that town and like. Seven, eight years is going to be so fucked up when the internet comes. Oh, man. Yeah. A lot of incels. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's Trump's America right there. <laughs> anyway, moving on. We don't, we don't want to get too political. No, no. Of course not. <laughs> Back to Dear White. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. that's the, the tentative string I can see between the two of them is this idea of... Your individuality and 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 being who you are, and let that be a representation of a whole. You know, right. Sam learns to. She's never going to lose her blackness, and she's never going to lose her. I guess she's white, right? She's also white. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. they never specifically say, but she's never going to lose either aspect of that, and she's never going to lose herself. 
but she can lose herself in those things. She mm. has. She lets her hair down, and is like, yeah, this is my hair. It's kind of white hair, I guess you would say. You know, and it's learning. Lionel learns, like, he puts that, that kiss on, on Kurt. Uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Troy learns to, to stand up to his father, and he's still a prick in the mm. end. He's still using these political moves to take control of Sam's crew or whatever, but it's, it's who he truly is. Coco learns to be who she takes off her blonde wig and it's all about being the individual you are and let that be a the 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 diplomat towards whatever else is going on yeah that you if you get lost in these things you will lose yourself and that's what happened to pete right pete got lost in that and lost himself and scott's the one who has the specific individual morality and uh, has these specific individual morals and uses them to change pete back or or to at least have pete face himself <laughs> and let the audience know i want you to hate me because i hate myself man like no truer words have been said by a uh villain of a story <laughs> if you were ever on the fence about what why a uh, character's motivations uh-huh pete dispelled cleared it a, yeah him. cleared it up for him <laughs> so yeah i mean do you got any more no, I think I think that's a pretty good analysis. Yeah, you know, uh, yeah. I wish I wish there was a better copy of the Buttercream Gang. That's the only thing. Well, and like, don't you think that would be a hilarious movie to watch with a, a group of people getting shit faced? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm full of those kinds of movies. <laughs> Did you see anything else from that production company? I I don't remember. There is a sequel to the Buttercream Gang that I've never seen. That is called like it's like the Buttercream Gang and the Lost Treasure. And it's the fat kid is the main character. And he finds a treasure map that leads them to Spanish gold. And either can make himself rich or save old man Jenkins' house. Tough decision. Tough decision. Yeah, I wonder how good that film is. (laughs) It's right before the internet got to that town. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I was blown away. The dance. They let them dance so close to each other. Oh, that's a good point. They were going down too, man. Yeah. Like they were, they were or getting down. They were getting down, and that firecracker by the feet just ruined everything. And I don't know what's up with that girl. That girl was like, she like she had Scott pick her up, and he's walking her to the dance, and then he's just like, well, you know, forget what he says, but essentially is like, I hope this isn't going to be too long, or hope you're not. No, expect- it's, it's I'm glad I can repay the favor. Right, and then she's like, well, if you don't want to go with me, then just don't go. And it's like. He's like, nah, girl, you took off those glasses and put on put on some makeup? Damn, we're going to the bleachers afterwards. That's what my wife said. She was like, oh, she's pretty. Look at her. She, <laughs> she, she took off her glasses. You know, she's being sarcastic. Because that's like a trope that my wife yeah. like, hates, of course. And she's a woman that wears glasses. Yeah, so she yeah. like hates that trope. Like, oh, all you have to do is take off her glasses. You're gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, would you see those goofy-ass fucking glasses she was wearing? It's not wearing glasses. It's the type of glasses you're wearing. Like your fucking Urkel glasses. Yeah. Like... <laughs> Some, Those some are my mom's friends in her pictures from high school oh. classes. <laughs> oh. uh, yeah, yeah. So what's the uh, what's what's for what's for next week? <laughs> so guys, we are we are officially halfway. That was the halfway point. We are on to second half of season two, season one, and the next one, two, three, four, five, six. The next six movies, let's say, maybe seven. The next few are going to be this weird and this hysterical. 
Uh, maybe not as weird as this, but they're going to be weird. Uh, so, wow, I really thought those two lined up. Okay, so next week we are doing 1971 director Hal Ashby's romantic classic. My girlfriend will kill me if I make her watch this again. Harold and Maude. And we are, we are pairing it up with 1998 director Stephen Norrington, writer David S. Gorier. Blade. Blade. Harold and Maude and Blade for next week. How do you feel about that? I remember, I've only seen Harold and Maude once, and I remember not liking it. Oh, I love it. I love it. I But I wonder what I, I mean, because I saw it in high school, so I wonder what I would think now, like, after having dated and, you, you know, like, having that ass, that whole chapter. Yeah. Like, I hadn't, I hadn't dated, like, I think I had two girlfriends when I saw it at that point. So, yeah, and Blade's just a good movie, so. <laughs> I haven't seen Blade in a very long time. It's, uh, I'm not going to say it's aged well, but. You um you might be pissed at the current state of superhero movies because of Blade. Yeah, I, just because it it was a simpler time. Yeah, there wasn't any expectations, and they they sought out to make a horror movie that just happened to be a superhero, like where there's a superhero that happened to be in it. Sure, not trying to like wedge in any type of MCU stuff. I can't anything. believe it's 1998. Yeah, yeah. So join us next week, uh, Michael Gutierrez, sir. Where can they find you on the internet? You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BlackSparrow86, all one word. BlackSparrow86, all one word. Twitter and Instagram. You can find me, Brian Bernard Monane, at GogBrianBernard on Instagram and Twitter. You can reach the Movie Movie Podcast at the Movie Movie Podcast at the Movie Movie Podcast. At, you can reach the Movie Movie Podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Movie Movie Pod or email us at Movie Movie Pod at gmail.com. So that's it. Uh, nice. Yeah, nice. Yeah. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye for providing us with our wonderful album art. Please rate, review, and subscribe on all your podcast platforms. And from all of us at the Movie Movie Podcast, we'll see you. We would. <laughs>